This program features interviews with people incarcerated or family members of those who are incarcerated with the Missouri Department of Corrections. Their names have been edited out for their protection. Welcome to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. And we're continuing our monthly series looking at the Missouri Department of Corrections and their response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're gonna be featuring, we're gonna to continue to feature interviews with those directly impacted by the Missouri Department of Corrections and their decisions. Joining me again today is Maria Miller, founder of Our Lives Matter and a leader with Expo, Ex-Incarcerated Persons Organizing. Welcome Maria and thank you for speaking with us again. Again, thank you for having me, Kevin. To start off with, uh, tell us about the direct action that Expo is planning in Jefferson City. When is it and what are the goals? So Expo and Our Lives Matter, we kind of came together, MCU backing us. We're going to go to Jeff City, October 15th. We're going to do a rally from 10 o'clock a.m. until 11 o'clock a.m. at 201 West Capitol Avenue. And what we plan to do with this is we have some ask. We want to bring attention to the issues that are going on inside the Missouri Department of Corrections. We want someone from the outside to go in there to investigate, to see what those incarcerated are saying, are these things true? So one of the first things that we're asking is for someone, the health department, um, senators, representatives, state legislative, go in, investigate this, see what's going on inside these prisons, hold them accountable. We're asking for continuous and proper COVID testing, not just on the people incarcerated, the staff. That staff should be properly tested as well since they're the only contact that these men and women have. We're asking for release of those people that have less than six months with the outdate. We're also asking the parole board to go back from when they had all these issues with their parole board and the corrupt things to go back and revisit these cases that were denied under their misuse of authority, under their misconduct. And we're also asking for video visitation. Like the Missouri Department of Corrections is like one of the only states that do not have video visitation. You have those incarcerated who have not seen their loved ones in seven months. So those are some of the asks that we're asking. Um, we've asked them before. No one's answered the emails, no one's responded. So we're in hopes to get enough people coming together in unity. We're going to the Capitol. And Precythe is not answering. We want to send out tweets that day with these demands. You know, we need her accountable. We need you to answer. We need someone to get involved and to go inside and make sure these things are not happening and these people are not being abused. Okay. And uh, are you encouraging others to participate and how can they participate? I assume that because of the pandemic, we're not taking a bus down or anything along those lines. Is it a matter of just meeting down there at that time at that location? Yes. So we'll be 
we are all just going to meet down there around 9.45. We actually have um, forms out, advertisement out on Expo St. Louis, Our Lives Matter. There's actually a form you can fill out to let us know if you're coming. And we can reach back out to you. Or There's also, we have a flyer, there's phone numbers or emails where we can be contacted. I would definitely encourage anyone that has a loved one incarcerated in the Missouri Department of Correction. I think this is definitely an action that you should participate in. Why? Because you're the only voice that this person has. You know, I, I advocate for those incarcerated. And so many of those people are so thankful because they don't have a voice in there. Their voice is ripped away. So to see someone on the outside fighting for them, for what's right, it means a lot. But it can be me, a couple people from Expo, you know, MCU. But when it's your family member, and the, it's a whole different impact. Like, a few people will be speaking, you know, on what the situation is with the Missouri Department of Corrections. But when you have many people with the same cause, and it's just not for family members. I think people that can make policy change or people that feel like this isn't right. So it doesn't just have to be your family member that's incarcerated. It could be, you just know this is wrong or you wanna see change. So I definitely would encourage you to come out, meet us there. No, I'm really not into protesting and rallies. But when you're fed up with no one answering and no one being accountable, let's start here. Then we'll we'll go to the next step and we'll keep going until somebody answers these issues. Okay, great. And I, I hear what you're saying too. It's it's not necessarily about the rally for the rally's sake, but you want answers and you want accountability. That's yeah. what we're looking for. That's what burns me the most, Kevin. Like when I look at this and I look at the issues, the issues started way before COVID. That's what drew my attention to COVID because I knew that this was going to be a big problem because it's, it's already a problem. The problem, I feel like if we talk about it and we sit at the round table and we work it out, but when you don't, you're not addressing the problem or the issue and you're sweeping under the rug and you're saying this is not what it is, to the media and to the public when you know that this is what it is and you're not being accountable, that's a big problem. That gets me more than anything. If you go look at these salaries of what these people, I'm not talking about the correction officers. They, we know that they don't get paid daily squat. That's why they don't want to work in their very short staff. We're talking about those people up in their director's office and the parole board and the directors and the liaisons and the spokespeople and constituent services, what they're getting paid. They're not getting paid like peanuts. I'm not gonna say that it's the pay is all the way up, but they're getting paid pretty decent money. But they're failing at their jobs. They're neglecting their jobs. They're not following protocol. They're misusing authority. They're performing misconduct. And we're just like, okay, well, what are we gonna do? They're not being held accountable. That burns me up. And all of this is, is uh, a, a lot of times we talk abstractly. And one of the things we're doing with this series is to bring the stories to life 
to talk about individuals who are witnessing what's going on and who are affected by what's going on. So today we're going to hear an interview that you conducted with a young man held in the Southeast Correctional Center in Charleston, Missouri. So let's take the time now to listen to the interview that Maria recorded, and we'll be back afterwards to discuss this story a little bit more. Hello, taxpayers. At the tender age of 17, I was illegally and unjustifiably questioned for homicide detectives, which subsequently led to me being tried for charges I was not guilty of. Of course, the court system failed me, and even though they have appeal processes, these appeal processes are rubber stamp, which means that they just go along with whatever's said in trial by the trial judge, and they also failed me. Recently, there have been a lot of things going on in DOC that we all are very, very displeased about, and through this organization here, we have an opportunity to speak some of these displeasures. The one I choose to speak about at this moment is the COVID-19. In July of this year, the DOC decided to do a statewide COVID test for everyone inside the DOC, starting at the institution I'm at, the Southeast Correctional Center. I refused to take this test. I didn't want them just injecting or me putting anything inside of my system and not knowing what it is. So by me refusing to take this test, I was handcuffed. I was paraded around the institution. I'm in six houses. The quarantine house is in five houses. All they had to do was take me to the gate and walk me to five houses. Instead, they took me around the whole institution to set example for everyone if they refused to take these tests. Mind you, this was the first housing unit to take tests. Once entering five house, you have to wear a personal uh, protective equipment, and this is mandatory. I was allowed to go inside of these wings without any mask or any form of protection. And not only that, when I was inside of this wing, I was strip searched and, of course, uh, inside of the hole. This was the whole part of this. So had they had more room in the hole, they would actually put me in the hole for this. So they had uh, every CO in there with, with mask on, gloves on, even plastic masks on top of their mask to protect them. However, when they brought me in there, I wasn't even allowed a mask. And I left the housing unit, which is population, where my mask was. They intentionally left that behind. I sat in that cell for 10 hours in my socks, T-shirt, and pants with no mask on. Now, the problem is each housing unit is... Um, separated by four wings. So each of these four wings share a ventilation system. Inside this ventilation system, I have an intake and an outtake vent. Now, everybody inside of this wing, well, at least majority of them, tested positive for this virus, and they're inside their cells. So if they're coughing, and we know it's a fact now that this virus was airborne, if this ventilation system is also connected to each and every uh, cell inside this housing unit, that means that I am now jeopardized because it's a possibility I can catch this through the ventilation system, which I did for it was possible that that can happen. So I end up taking a test maybe two weeks later. Uh, in the process of this, though, there are a lot of things that could have been done different. You even have COs who said that they are willing to write statements showing that what they feel should have been done or what could have been done different. However, you have uh, staff members, which is the administration, who refuse to 
to, uh, to see you on with the actual process of bettering this situation. You see, the caseworkers are not the ones that have to go inside the wings and deal with the guys that are under quarantine. It's the COs, and the COs are the ones who have the problem just like I have the problem. I attempted to make some suggestions, which was submitted to a caseworker who approved of them, as he say, submitted ILC, which forwarded to the function unit manager. Supposedly, she approved of it, and it went to the deputy warden's office for a proper disposition. What I know of today is, at this very moment, it's a chart that shows that um, from the amount of 500 to $5,000 they received for the house unit five for quarantine. Yeah, I know. Sound weird, right? And I just said, now that quarantine is over, they are now using this whole housing unit, which was used for quarantine, as an intake dorm for Bonterre because they're so over full. So what they're doing is they're allowing guys from Bonterre to come in as a um, receiving offender, put them inside of Five House, which was the quarantine housing unit, and then ship them to where they're supposed to go. Mass incarceration is real. That's another reason why I participate in these things where our lives matter. One more thing that I have to say about the quarantine thing is I submitted some suggestions. What I did was the suggestions were based off of people who refused to take the test and let them know that these people should not be treated as this is a disciplinary sanction. What I should have done is just submitted a full roster of the do's and don'ts for the simple fact this is a first-time pandemic for the institution and probably the world, so there is no actual guidelines. What could be done is uh, people who comment on this could uh, uh, submit some suggestions. Therefore, you know that what it is that you feel that your loved ones can be taken care of based off your ideas can also be implemented inside the institution so you can be assured that your taxpayer dollars are not being used in a negative or uh, a hidden fashion. Because like I say, they're receiving from 500 to $5,000 to um, house these people in five houses. Remind you, before this, this pandemic hit this institution, the housing unit was cleared out. So this was planned. I mean, it could have been a precautionary measure. However, this is the DOC that we're dealing with. I doubt if that was the actual measure. What I do know is that they are, they are receiving finance for quarantining that housing unit. And now that that is over, you know, are they still receiving their finance on the books? Are they saying that they are still quarantining people? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. But we do welcome any and all comments and any form of assistance to rectify anything that could be done and that should be done. So when you said that you refused the test, can you um, kind of explain what was the main reason that you did not want to do the test? Well, first off, I'm aware of the DOC. This machine, it experiments on people. There used to be a, 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 a allergy pill uh, that was made specifically for the DOC. Once it was proven that it works for the DOC, the FDA approved of it and took it out of the DOC and put it in the shelf, put it on the shelves in society. So, and I also know what happened to the Tuskegee, how people are experimenting on. And this is the first place where all of these drugs are experimenting. And then I didn't want people putting stuff all up in my nose and not knowing what it is. Besides, I OD before. I did drugs before and I died and I, I gave all that up. So maybe I was also traumatized. But I do know I did not want to risk me 
having the episode or, or maybe even having an allergic reaction to whatever chemical that they were sitting inside my body. And mind you, I did have a chemical reaction. My belly has swelled. And I, I've been trying to get medical treatment for that also. Can you just give us some of the things that you have witnessed with this um, COVID-19 inside your facility? Now, I do know that your facility is not one of the ones that are um, – really bad with this, but just some of the things that you've seen or um, with people that have maybe um, tested positive, the care, the medical treatment, any of those things? Uh, well, to my knowledge, the individuals who tested positive, they had them in either A-wing or B-wing, which I guess are the more severe cases of it. Uh, they were tested twice. And during these tests, I honestly can't speak on the medical treatment because I, I haven't seen that firsthand. But I do know um, that the ventilation system is very, very, very dirty. And anything, if someone coughs inside that cell, you're going you're gonna to know inside the next cell. It'll be a change of very quick. But um, the people who test positive... Uh, medical do come and see them. They, they give them aspirins or something like that. You know, they take their uh, temperatures. Uh, I don't know if they receive any additional shots or any special medical treatment. All I do know is that they will stay inside of their quarantine for two weeks. And if they test positive again, they will stay another two weeks. You have to test negative twice in order to get out of uh, quarantine. So to be honest with you, the actual procedures that they go through or the actual medical treatment, I haven't seen that firsthand because the way they had me in, even though those guys were positive, I came in on the end of it to where it was only a few days. And to my knowledge, what I've seen, the nurse was just going to them, giving them their, their regular medications. There wasn't anything extra that I've seen. So thank you for your honesty on that. I know you have a certain amount of time that you can talk on the phone. One of my last questions um, is, you know, I advocate for um, different people and addressing this pandemic with the Department of Corrections. A few people that I began to advocate for over the last few weeks, I've realized, um, especially this morning, where these families are calling in, um, these two men are now placed in ADSEG and are being treated very coldly. Um, so me personally, I feel like this is retaliation because these um, – Violations in these moves came shortly like a week after I sent the letter or within that week. So can you just kind of like briefly tell uh, tell us your experience on the Department of Corrections and retaliation? Well, first off, retaliation is very real in the DOC. This is a this is a, a, a machine to where someone is related to someone. So if 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 a CO was to write someone up, the response to that is it's a possibility you're gonna you're gonna be seen by their aunt, their uncle, their wife, their husband, their cousin, their child. You know, it's a strong possibility. So that 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 form of of, of favoritism is there. So it was a time where I was at a different institution and my significant other came to see me. Now, my significant other is a strong black woman, and when she came, there was an automatic aura of, you know, royalty there, and automatically, the CEOs had a feeling of about her, and they started picking with her, but it was all based off of their intentions with me, because they disliked me, so they retaliated against her first, 
one time she came and saw me, and the people messed with her so bad where they, had, they sent her out saying that her clothes wasn't proper, although it met the standards of the DOC. They had to go change. She complied, came back. They still was messing with her. They told me that oh, your, your visitors acting belligerent and all of this, so I got angry myself because it was an intentional act on the DOC to not just get what to get at her, but it was also to get at me. These things are done because they are in a position of power. The same way on the streets. You know, if you do something to an officer or officer family, matter of fact, if you do something to an officer family, you can bet if that officer is not involved that he's going to have one of his partners involve themselves in your arrest or your, your antagonizing events. Including on what I was saying about my visitor that day, she was even turned around. I mean, she was even pulled over by the, the highway patrol that day. And the highway patrol was going the opposite way she was going. They literally stopped what they was doing, busted U-turn, and followed her for a good five miles, and then decided, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop her. I know for a fact, because after the investigation that the, the uh, uh, COs who was antagonizing my significant other and also messing with me because of some situation when I was at, at the institution prior, many years before, they were family members. And this was something that was supposed to be investigated by the Attorney General. However, I would be surprised if the Attorney General not related to them too because there is no response after that. But retaliation is very real inside the DLC. It's one of the worst forms of control freaks inside this place. Because if DCOs do something wrong and you, let's say you file an IR, which don't work, they will intentionally kick your cell in, have a CO set you up, get you locked up, all of these type of things like this. Like, it is it, very real in here. And this is one of the only outlets our lives matter that allow these things to be heard and seek things to be done. So I'm I'm very, you know, open to participate in these interviews and events. I've heard of these stories before on ways that they retaliate, and I just think that something needs to be done about that. Um, I do want to thank you for your courage and your boldness because, you know, I meet people that are afraid to speak and they would rather be mistreated than to speak up and to talk about the things that are going on inside the Department of Corrections because they don't want to be retaliated. They don't want to suffer. They don't want to be hurt and harassed and targeted. So they would hold their voices and just allow the mistreatment is what I say. So I want to thank you for your time today. I want to thank you for your truth. I want to thank you for your courage and your boldness. And prayerfully, we can get the result that we need for the Department of Corrections to start addressing some of these concerns and, you know, treating people fairly. So, again, thank you for your time. I want to say one quick thing to you, Ms. Miller. Mm -hmm. I have spent the last two decades in change, and some change inside these institutions falsely accused of crimes. I'm not afraid of the DOC. They've taken my 20s, my 30s, and they want to take more from me. They can't take any more from me. I have my pride. I am the man that I am. You know, these people didn't raise me. They just separated me from a lot of distractions. So, to me, I feel like I beat the system. I grew up in this place, but not of this place. They did not make a monster. What they did was they had me acknowledge the God within me. So, Ms. Miller, I'm not afraid. They don't scare me. What can they do to me? Okay, so we just heard from our testimony 
So just for context, uh, when you recorded this interview, how long ago was that? And, and how, how is this gentleman doing right now? The interview was within maybe like three, it was within the month, within this last 30 days. Um, right now, he is upset. He believes he's had uh, some issues going on with his stomach since he did the COVID testing. He believes that they did something to him to make his stomach go up. Um, like he said, it's hard and he's just like, it's not right. It's not right. It's not, this is not how my stomach was. I wouldn't say that he's fearful. I think that he's more so upset. And even like I hear the frustration in his voice when he talks about it, like upset to the point where it could even turn into anger because he feels like he didn't want to take the test. They 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 kind of made him take the test, which we agreed. Okay, look, because I have to sometimes be the voice of reason. Like you're going to go back out there for your own safety. You should just go ahead and take the test, you know, so that you know which is tested in the negative, but that was one of the main reasons he did not want to take the test because he does not trust his life in their care. He doesn't trust their diagnosis. He doesn't trust their medical. And he's just upset that he was kind of forced to take the test and now he's having issues with his stomach. Uh, Maria, what are some things that stand out to you about this young man's story? With this story... The system failed him. Like, he was 18 years old, sent away to prison. And then he's falsely accused. He was sent to 32 years in prison at 18. So you go to this prison as a young man, and they fail you. So not only has the justice system failed you, the correction system has failed you as well. It's far more than corrections, it's corruption. Again, they're misusing authority. They're abusing. They're stripping you from everything that you believe in. It just makes me look at the justice system and the, there just needs to be, there's a desperate need for reform. Uh, how did you come to work with him? Um, as I told you, I started this um, advocating when my brother like, was murdered in uh, Crossroads Correctional Facility, and we really couldn't get the legal help that we needed. So I began to investigate his case on my own and look, look through those records and look through those reports, and it blew me away. So... Um, he was a friend of my brother's, a really good friend. So I began to go up to Licking, South, um, South Central Correctional Center. And Kevin, I would say, my God, um, my brother's spirit led me there. My very first visit. This is what I, I never knew that I would be so an advocate. Honestly, that wasn't my mission. I was actually going to check on the well-being and just because I never thought I would go back and visit a prison. However, when I went, my very first visit, I saw the way the staff treated me and this other lady. 
Now I'm gonna say it's not a race thing or anything. We were the only two black women there. We both had to wait almost like two hours for the visit. And we started, she started telling me about her nephew. So I wanted to give her a book. I wanted to like kind of inspire her. And when she pulled to my car, she was crying. And I was like, what's wrong? She said, my nephew got stabbed. She said, I knew the spirit told me to come and see my nephew. Just want to say, get up and go see him. She said, he lifted his shirt up and showed me where the wound was. She was crying. I said, it's going to be okay. So I gave her my book and I gave her a business card. And I said, I'll help you. I said, they're going to run you around. They're going to run you. They're going to run you. I said, but I'll help you. So that was like my very first person I advocated for it. Like, and of course, but at that moment, Kevin, I knew that I had to start helping families fight. I didn't know that it would go to this degree. But at that moment, I knew I had to help her. And just like I said, they never really gave me. So I had to go back and forth, in and out, back and forth with her MDOC in South Central Correctional Center. What what's kind of the status of the Southeast Correctional Center in Charleston? Have there been any changes since we've heard um, uh, from this gentleman in this interview, or is anything getting better, or or what's happening there? No, actually, um, as we talk, they transferred many people from Montero down to Charleston. Charleston was, as we talked about the last time, one of the prisons that had the least. Um, COVID testing positive. It was more controlled. It was better. The, the policy and procedures were handled better. The professionalism was better. But doing that transfer, um, first of all, I think that was really crazy to transfer these people during this pandemic, you know. But now they're mixing. They're mixing the housing units in. And now cases are rising up again, which is like each facility is ran differently. I get it. You got one rule over here. This rule does not apply over here. You got this rule over there and that doesn't apply over there. It's like, come, how hard is it to come up with one policy and procedure, make sure it's being followed for all 21 of those prisons? I believe it's 21. How hard is that? There, it, it's rising up. Just now with Southeast, it's rising up. It's now in Moberly. Why are you sending people out to wash clothes in a hospital? Now COVID's there. Why are you transferring these people not only to different prisons, but now you're, you're intertwining, you're cross-contaminating the wings and the people? I'm not, I don't work in a prison facility. I work in a little office. Me and my staff practice social distancing. I thank God I have my own office, but these people have cells. So they, can, they cannot practice social distancing. You have to move around and it's like they're being punished. And I say punished because 
you can't even see your family members. Like, you can't get visits. Um, they're kind of opening things up a little bit as far as like rec and library and things like that. But in the reality of it, is that safe? I, I hear officers are still not properly or in continuously wearing masks, gloves, or they even still being tested? I don't know. It's just like they do whatever they want to do, and it's okay. It's okay. We can do this. We can do that. It's okay. So that's definitely still going on. The, the COVID pandemic is another layer on top of the, the stress that, that these men and women are put under who are incarcerated. So it's, it's one more thing on top of uh, what they're already going through. And it's, it's a major issue, Kevin. I'm going to say that because, okay, think about us. Remember how we started freaking out when we knew COVID was here and masks and going by all the tissue and the sanitizer and the alcohol and social distancing and staying away from people? We have that liberty. In prison, you can't do social distancing. Like I told you, with this COVID, one of the saddest things to me was when a um, wife called me and she was crying, she's like, her husband can barely breathe and she can just hear coughing all around her. I've seen videos of these men. It wasn't in Missouri though. Just some kind of way other states get phones in the jails. And men are just laid out, breathing. Because I know medical has failed individuals and continuously I don't, I don't trust medical at all with my loved one. My brother died on the cold prison floor and medical never made one attempt to save his life. These are what they were trained for. I have a sister who's a nurse. You make a vow when you get that license. If you're outside and you see someone dying, you have to stop what you're doing to go and attempt to save this person's life. Now, that's something they make a vow when they get those licenses. Now, there's a difference when you work for a facility or a hospital or a center and you get a patient in there that needs your immediate assistance, you do that. But when you're sworn in, if you see a stranger on the street and you're off duty, that you stop and you go try to help save that person's life, but you're paying someone at work and they're not doing their job, that's a big issue. Medical is failing these individuals daily. And that is another reason that they don't trust them. Those men, if we listen to those other podcasts, they will say how they would rather suffer. And they kind of depend on their comrades, which are people around them, to protect in that for safety and protection and trust. They would rather suffer than go inside their medical because they don't trust these people. That's not good. That's not good. Can you tell us once again um, uh, more about this this rally on October fifteenth? Uh, where and where and what time again? Yes. Yeah, so we will be going up to the state capitol, which is two zero one West Capitol Avenue. We'll be there arriving around nine forty five. We'll be there from ten until eleven, and we're asking. 
if you have a loved one incarcerated, or you want to be part of this change, this movement, it's a movement. It won't, it didn't start with us going to the state capitol, and it won't end with us leaving there. This is a continuous, ongoing battle. So the first thing we're asking is for someone to go inside those prisons, see what these people that are crying out for help, see if these things are true. We're asking for continuous, not just test this place and go over here. Continuous testing, proper continuous testing. Not just on the people incarcerated, the staff. We're asking for visible, on-hand, proper safety equipment. Some of my clients have outdates in the next in three months. So it would like to me to say, you know what, this person is scheduled to get out of jail in three months. Let me let them out. I think that they need to start doing some release. We'll look, we'll look at New Jersey. The mayor put out an executive order in April to release 416 people. As of now, 329 people have been released. How many people have Missouri released? There's no reason why you're holding these people in prison like this and not releasing anybody. Even the ones that are due, parole will tell you, oh, we are not suspending any parole. I have people that just don't want to come forward because their parole dates are coming up and they don't want to get retaliated on. And another thing, video visitation. You haven't been able to see your loved ones since March. Let's fix the mistake, Ms. Director. Let's get these people, because we're like the only state that does not have video visits, but you have people that are married, mothers, children that have loved ones incarcerated, and they can't see their loved ones because Missouri Department of Corrections does not have video visitation. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And we want to encourage folks to participate. Do you have any other contact information that you'd like to to share with us? Yes. Again, we will post a flyer. You can also go to Our Lives Matters page. It also is going to be posted, like you said, on Expo St. Louis, MCU's information. The emails are on the flyer. I can also be reached at 314-467-8341. Again, 314-467-8341. Again, we will be meeting at the state capitol at 201 West Capitol Avenue, um, Jefferson City, Missouri, 65101. Thursday, October 15th, arriving around 9.45. We'll be there from 10 until 11. Again, my name is Maria with Our Lives Matter. I am a leader with Expo St. Louis, also MCU. My phone number is 314-467-8341. And also, uh, you're also getting that information out there for anybody who has a loved one that's incarcerated and, and would need some help in any particular situation, correct? Yes, because like I said, it didn't just start or stop with COVID. Right. We want reform around the entire correction system. It's corrupt, it's not correcting anyone. I don't know anyone, and if you have loved ones or even advocated or they're not going to, there's no one that I've ever met that said that system has corrected them. It has corrupted them. It has tried to destroy them. It has beat them down. And it's taken away trust 
you, 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 these people can't even trust you with their lives. They would rather depend on their fellow comrade to nourish them back to life if there was a fallen soldier. They don't, many of these people don't want the nurses touching them because they are, I'm not going to say afraid, they don't trust the system. And we're going to hear more of these uh, individual stories in the coming months um, in future programs. So please continue to to listen to uh, This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. And I want to thank you again, Maria, for joining us. Um, as you said, a founder of Our Lives Matter and a leader with Expo, Ex-Incarcerated Persons Organizing. So thank you again for your time today. Thank you for having us, Kevin. It's not one of the things to me when I first started with this, you don't get a lot of people that are even interested to know what's going on inside those walls that are happening to someone's loved one. So you might get some people, you have to literally like keep going and going and going before someone even wants to know or look into what's going on inside those walls. So I'm sure when I say thank you, it's just not from me, it's from those incarcerated, it's from those families that you've heard and you listened to and you put together a podcast, which gives them like, oh, thank you, because someone cares. So thank you for taking your time out to even put these things together. And when I say this, it's not just coming from me, it's coming from those incarcerated and their families as well, so thank you. Good, we're so glad to hear that. And, and I think the personal stories make, make all the difference in the world. Uh, we're just about out of time for today, but I want to uh, encourage folks to learn more about MCU uh, and go to our website at mcustlewis.org. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening. 